Welcome to the Biz and Mayhem podcast, where we talk about the mayhem in our lives and how to get ahead in business and your career. This is Chris Batchelor, and I'm here with my co-host, Tara Parker. Let's get started. Welcome to episode four of the Biz and Mayhem podcast. How are you doing, Tara? Pretty good. How about you, Chris? I'm doing just fine. So what do we got first up in the newsroom? This is the newsroom. Well, first up, we're going to start with everybody's favorite topic, and that's COVID-19. I mean, what else is there to talk about? And being that we're in Kansas, we're reopening slowly, slowly, but surely. Um, have you seen this uh, this plan that the governor has for reopening the, the state? Yeah, I read some of it. I think uh, I saw people are still pissed because they can't get a haircut and some other things. Correct. (laughs) My boy is one of them. He's a, we can dread his hair out if we wanted to. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, it's getting so long. It's terrible. But yeah, I think I've read through this um, when the, when, you know, when it was first distributed and I think it was, it was leaked out when it shouldn't have been. Somebody got a hold of it and put it out to the media beforehand, but it's, it's, it's pretty typical, you know, you kind of ease into it. I'm critical of it because, you know, the social distancing, social distancing thing is something I'm not a big fan of simply because you stay six feet away. But um, so especially if you're in the retail, somebody's going to move into that place within a few seconds. And if anybody's left anything behind and the next person touches it, you're picking it up. So right. I'm not a big fan of the social distancing. And that's what this plan is completely based on from the governor is social distancing. So um, I know over I've been out to eat since this whole thing started and, you know, they're seating people every six feet which is, you know, fine and dandy, but I didn't see anybody wiping down chairs that we were sitting in. I saw them wiping down tables, but they weren't wiping down the chairs. And my purse sat in the chair with me and, you know, it's, you you sit down and whatever other things you have with you. So I I find it funny. The most amusing thing about this reopening plan is the phase four, because I think there's only four phases. The last part of phase four says in order for all of you know, the, the final step in all of this is that everybody needs to adhere to personal hygiene and um, staying home when sick. And I thought that was kind of funny. You would think that'd be the first thing to, that you would have wanted to take on to help flatten this curve. So, yeah, I don't know that they really thought a lot of this through. I mean, you know, to me, uh, what we're lacking in a lot of these responses is personal accountability, right? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, if you're, if you're sick, stay home. That's your personal responsibility. And I, right. I think we've lost that quite a bit in this country where, you know, a lot of people are entitled and they think they just get what they should get. And, mm-hmm. you know, but I think uh, part of your, you know, your duty to your, to your community is to be accountable for yourself. And if you're sick, stay home. And, yeah. um, you know, obviously there's going to be people that are going to have a hard time with that if they're, you know, the only person in the house that can go out and get groceries or something. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's where the community needs to step in and help out people that, you know, have limited resources. But I haven't heard a lot of talk about personal accountability. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is I was in Costco yesterday. And of course, I, at Costco is making everybody wear a mask. So I had my mask on and I heard a, a guy go up to a uh, one of the associates there at Costco and was just kind of really loud about saying, hey, there's this lady in this aisle and she doesn't have her mask on. And if I have to wear a mask, then she has to wear a mask. And I, I mean, I, I kind of thought this guy was going to beat up the Costco associate, <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, it, it was getting to be where he was, you know, I mean, I, I could see the security taking him out because uh, I just wildly inappropriate, but it just shows how much people are on edge. Right. Um, well, there's no and, thinking there. I mean, who cares if that person's not wearing a mask? The mask is for personal protection. Yeah. So what does he care about her as long well, as he feels he's protected? Yeah, I think I think it's more of a, uh, you know, his his point was if I have to wear it, you know, she has to wear it, you know, which I, I totally get. But, um, you know, I think that uh, we're just going way, way too far with all mm-hmm. this stuff. And it's uh, it's really um, it's really kind of sad in, in a lot of ways, I think. I, I agree. I think that this is completely blown out of proportion. I think this is I, I, so many people are so readily, they're easily influenced by the things that the media tells them versus going out there and finding their own information. Um, I'm, I'm one of those, I mean, I, I guess you kind of call me a rebel. I'm not going to Costco because they require the mask. And it's like, you know what, there's nothing at Costco that I need so badly that I'm going to deal with all this, this stuff. And so I'll just continue to go to the other retailers out there that I can access without having to wear a mask. Cause I'm just, 
that mask is just cross contamination. You take, you have the mask out in public. And if you touch that mask, after you've touched something on the, on the retail shelves, you take that mask home, you set it down and you're just taking stuff from one place to another. You may not be inhaling things like you would be otherwise, but there's been several times that this, this, this COVID virus thing has been said to, it spreads hand to mouth more than it spreads um, through the air. So, but they, um, that's kind of where the, you know, it goes into, you know, with the state reopening um, these, you know, safe distancing, social distancing, and you're going into um, the different things you need to know before going back to work or going back to school, which I don't think schools are going to open until the fall. And so in the, in the show notes, those, the second, um, there's another article in there about the facts about going back to, to school and back to work. And, and there's some interesting metrics on there about how, about the contagion factors, how contagious is this thing compared to others? And I don't know if you read that, Chris, but um, if you compare this thing to the flu, COVID-19 is not as contagious as the flu. So I'm really yeah, so, concerned so about the, that. So the article you've got here is three coronavirus, corona, sorry, three, <laughs> <laughs> three cor, coronavirus, cor, no, that's not how it's spelled. <laughs> coronavirus. Three coronavirus facts Americans must know before returning to work or school. Yep. Um, and it's a Forbes article here, and it, and it talks about this metric, uh, or sorry, about this uh, variable R naught, right? So, mm-hmm. so he's, what was what's R naught for coronavirus? So the R naught for the coronavirus, I believe, was sitting at three or four. Let me scroll down to it and cheat a little bit here. So, and if I understand that correctly, that means that if somebody has coronavirus, if there are not, if the if the virus R naught factor is three or four. That means on average, somebody who has coronavirus will infect three or four other people, right? That have not been infected, yes. Okay. And so they're exposed to way more than that. So it doesn't, it doesn't give you the exposure rate. It just tells you as they're going around people, roughly three to four, every three to fourth person is going to get it. Potentially. It's not an absolute and, fact. The flu is 1.2 though. So okay. it's, it's three times more contagious per this R not factor. Um, I'm still scrolling down to find it because there was... They had a few on there, like AIDS was listed on there. So the row not for AIDS is 4.0. Seasonal flu is 1.2. Measles is like 12 to 14 or 12 to 18 rather. So the, the COVID-19, where does it say? It's 2.3, 2.5 to 3.0. And so when you compare that, it's the flu is still at least two, almost three times as more likely to spread than COVID-19. But we are not taking the same precautions or pursuing the same hygiene requirements yeah. for the flu, which is more dangerous to children. It's more dangerous to pregnant women and it's more dangerous to the elderly. Whereas COVID-19 is, it's usually the elderly and the compromised that are at the highest risk. So it's, I find this information all interesting and mm-hmm. uh, in, in how we're responding to this thing compared to, to other things. But as memory serves the last few years, we've, the media has really tried to push how much the flu is killing people. You should get your flu vaccination you haven't heard word one about the flu though this year right. at all. So, so yeah, the article says here that R naught for measles is twelve to eighteen, mm-hmm. um, which means that one infected person will transmit the virus to as many as eighteen unprotected people. So this virus is only um, you said is three. Is that what it says? It's in here about two point five to two, three. Oh, there it is. Yep, yep. two point five to three. So if you have coronavirus between two point five and three people, uh, on average, will be infected. And so it's what's interesting here, though, is it says that R naught, if R naught is less than one, uh, basically the virus will die out, right? Yeah. It will slowly, slowly die out. If it equals one, then then it won't, you know, increase or decrease. It just basically passes it along in a linear line. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's more than one, it's a it's an exponential value. But what they don't talk about in here, and, and that's probably another article for another day, is um, how bad they've screwed up some of these models. Oh, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of the hurricane season where a couple days before a hurricane, like the world's going to end, Yeah. Uh, you know, and then they, they make all these predictions and then it dies down and it really isn't a bad, and, you know, sometimes it is really bad, but most mm-hmm. of the time the media blows it way out of proportion. So, well, and then there's, you know, the, I remember her hurricane Katrina, that's the one that I believe that hit new Orleans and, and yep. just destroyed new Orleans and people were told, get out. This is going to be bad. And given the situation and, you know, down there, I don't know that the media blew that up enough maybe to get people, but would people have listened otherwise? You well, know, yeah, they- so, so I lived down there after Katrina. Um, you know, we, we moved in there several years after Katrina and 
Um, I, I think there was a lot that could be different, but certainly, you know, crying wolf didn't help the situation, right? No. But there's a, there's a big general distrust of the government down there, uh, oh, in, in the South in general. And, and that, that certainly didn't help things out, but no, I'm um, sure. Well, let's move on to the next one yeah. here. Uh, it says that uh, in all places in Kansas here, uh, Baskin Robbins put uh, a Tiger King joke on their uh, on their billboard, and it got quite a hit. It made national news, which it, is pretty pretty cool. Kansas never makes national news, so I thought this was great. And I'm not, I haven't seen this show. I don't know anything about this show other than Carol Baskin supposedly may have killed her husband on murder for. I don't know. I refuse to watch it. I can't do it. Everybody's. I've heard so many mixed reviews, but I thought this was hilarious because I understood the reference well enough. Yeah. And, and I, I guess, you know, being in Kansas, there's a lot of those redneck jokes that are centered around Kansas. And then it sounds to me like this guy, I guess he's in Oklahoma is where this guy's based out of. Well, now he's in jail now. Oh, okay. Well, the, the guy, uh, the guy that was the tiger King on the show, I, I haven't seen the show either, but I'm going to have to watch it now so we can talk about it. <laughs> um, but the Baskin Robin sign says no relation to Carol Baskin, right. which yes. is kind of funny, but Apparently the guy, uh, the guy was running a pretty shady business, but in this show, you know, he's, he kept uh, going on about this feud with this gal that he had, uh, that, that he knew. And she was another tiger, uh, right. person. So yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. It's uh, good stuff. No, Can't not imagine. like that. It came out at the perfect time too, with all this coronavirus oh, stuff yeah. going down and people were stuck at home and just some good trash TV to watch. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, and we have an update from Kansas. Uh, speaking of Kansas, the uh, farmer who mailed uh, the New York governor an N95 mask, uh, he actually got his bachelor's degree. Yeah, this is a follow up from an article that you brought forth a couple weeks ago. And so I, I didn't get to read the whole thing. I haven't followed this as well as you have, but it sounds like he was pretty close to his degree when he left to run the family farm and now he's got it. Is that what? What's going on yes. with that? So what I read was he was uh, two credits away from getting his degree and then left school to, to work on the farm with dad. And uh, and then, you know, the state of Kansas found out about this and they awarded him an honorary degree, um, you know, basically saying that his years of experience uh, more than covered uh, what he needed for an agricultural degree. So they really they I just thought that was uh, that was really uh, kind of a cool thing to do in the midst of all this. And. Uh, you know, everybody kind of needs a, a feel-good story out of all this coronavirus. So I thought that was really cool of them to do. Yeah, it, you know, I've got a background in um, academia, and so this kind of, you know, having hearing you get into more detail about this, um, I think this is probably going to hit a sour note with some of our uh, listeners out there because I know a lot of people out there have years and years of of experience in their field, and they're struggling to get their degree and they can't get it because their their schools say your experience isn't worthwhile. And here the state of Kansas steps in and says, no, your experience is worthwhile. You've, you've obviously done a great deed here. And it's almost like a reward for standing up and doing something a little bit different than everybody else. So that's, that's interesting. I wonder how, um, I'd like to see how the public is going to respond to that for those that are out there trying to, to make a difference, you know, and have gone the route this has, this guy has gone into, but that's a good follow-up. That's I'm well, I think, uh, I, I think it just shows how, um, you know, places like states, you know, governments, uh, can still get some positive PR yeah. uh, out of this stuff. And it really doesn't cost them hardly any money. I mean, yeah. they, they held a press conference and gave a guy a piece of paper. I mean, that, that couldn't have cost the state very much, right. uh, but they were a lot of, were able to get a lot of good free press out of it. And, you know, whether people want to acknowledge it or not, this, the country is made up of different states for a reason. So the states yeah. can be in competition with each other. Uh, so this is just one more thing that can, you know, give it, give the state an edge. So, yeah. um, I, I thought Absolutely. that was pretty cool. And, uh, certainly thing now, I don't think universities should be giving away degrees just to give them away, but you know, every once in a while kind of thing is, it makes it worth it. Yeah. That's the value. That's awesome. It's time to work that career and lift and push and lift and push. You got it now harder lift and push it's the career workout excellent so i don't know if you had a chance to look at this article but you know me i'm always looking for these different career improvements because my coaching background and a consulting um, desires and so i found this one and i thought it was interesting because it gives you six tips for um improving your career or things that are holding your career back rather and so looking through this um there's a lot of it that i i agree with this is how i coach my clients 
Um, and just to run through the, the six points real quick, the first one was lack of confidence. And then there's procrastination as the second one. Third is being unsociable. And then there's technophobia, uh, perfectionism. And the last one is a sense of entitlement. And I've seen, and I'm, as I'm sure you have, Chris, I've seen all of this in one work environment or another. Um, yeah. And I can tell you technophobia, I think I've seen that one create a, a mentality and a negative attitude that really does hold people back in their their career, regardless if they're any point in their career. Normally it's the uh, the older generation that tend to get a little bit more upset with technology interfering with their um, with their workspace. In fact, uh, there was a one of my previous coworkers. He's retired now, but he absolutely despised computers, and he was very upset when email was introduced back in the yeah. day, and everybody had to start using email. Um, but of all of these, and then, you know, I, I like to get your take on this. The one that um, I think that stands out the most to me is the number one, and that's lack of confidence. That will hold anybody back. So if you don't believe in you then it's unlikely you're going to believe when your manager believes in you because more than oh, likely absolutely. Yeah. your manager will believe in you and you won't take that as a being worth anything. And so the less you believe in yourself, the more you're going to hold yourself back. And I know the more confident I've been in my positions, the better off I have done, regardless if somebody liked me or not. So of those six points, which one kind of stands out to you? Well, I, I kind of want to break these down one by one. I mean, cause okay. they, you know, they, I mean, I think they're all fantastic. Um, you know, we touched a little bit already on lack of confidence, but yeah, yeah I, I can definitely say, uh, you know, when you go to somebody and ask them to do something, um, as part of their job and they're like, mm, no, right. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, isn't really inspiring. Um, you know, and it's, it's okay to not know things, but, but, you know, talk to your manager and say, you know, I don't know, but I'm willing to learn. Um, the, the willing to learn part for me is huge. Yes. And, uh, and that, that shows a lot of confidence. So I think that, you know, even if you're asked to do something that you're not confident that you can do, if you ask for the resources to help, you know, educate you or, or get things done, then I think that mm -hmm. shows a lot. Now, um, I think a lot of people have to walk the line because, you know, when it comes to new tools or things like that, you're probably um, maybe walking an uphill battle when trying to get, you know, new, new uh, resources, but certainly yeah. training uh, is out there. And, you know, for me, uh, initiative is really big. When somebody says, I don't know how to do something, but I'm going to find out mm -hmm. and they go on YouTube or they, you know, look something up uh, to me that that goes a really, really long way. Agreed. And that's and that's something that I've always done because I've been thrown in face first into a, a new job and always had to figure it out as I go. So I think that's part of my natural work ethic. But um, it's hard. That's a hard one, I think, to it's not as contagious of a work ethic as I'd like to see it be. Um, I hear a lot of that's not part of my job. Uh, that's out of my pay grade, I think, which to a point is fine. But there are times when it doesn't need to be in your pay grade to get it done, especially if you right. want to move up in your career. And so, um, well, yeah. I, I mean, I can give you a, a fantastic example of that. I used to be an airplane mechanic and there were, um, you know, more senior airplane mechanics and they would joke and they'd hold their hand up by their throat and they say, well, I get paid from here down. You know, meaning that they don't get paid to think they just get paid to change parts right. out. And, uh, you know, I mean, that that kind of uh, attitude is really, you know, not that healthy if you want to, you know, grow in your career. I mean, if you just want to keep the status quo for the next yeah. 20 years or whatever, that that's probably going to work OK for a while. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, certainly, um, you know, having the confidence to take on new things is is uh, is going to get you more places in the long run. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Point number two is procrastination. Not like we've ever seen anything like that before. I mean, we never <laughs> procrastinate. Right. <laughs> this, and I think this is, this comes with maturity. A lot of the time I, um, I see uh, the different age groups and it's typically the, the, the baby boomers are slowly um, transitioning out of their workplace and your millennials are transitioning. Well, actually the Gen Xers and Gen Ys are transitioning into those spots, but it seems like that's more of a maturity is, you know, you first come out of college, you're excited about your job, you're willing to do anything, and then you get a little burnout or jaded, and you kind of put things off, and I'm not willing to do that right now, I'm not in the mood, and then you go into another where I need to get this done, I have to get this done. And I think the people who want to move up in the career are less lazy. I think they're more willing to do more, but I think there's there's a wise way to do it, and then there's a foolish way to do it. And so well, I, I'm not really sure it's lazy though. Right. I mean, cause somebody who's lazy just isn't going to get it done at all. I, I think we're, are we more talking about the someone who leaves things to like the last minute? 
I think and I'm totally know. guilty of this because I, I mean, you know, expense reports and stuff. I mean, there's there's work at work that I don't didn't particularly like doing, right? And I always put right. that sort of stuff off. So, yeah, um, yeah. I think, uh, but that's what we have people to delegate to for. Find the person who enjoys doing that stuff, and sure, you've got a team to do that. But not everybody has a team, though. So, yeah, good, good point. I mean, you know, I think think the big point of this part of the article is, you know, if you got something you have to get done, just get it done. And you yeah. know, I, I think there's a fine art of you know scheduling your time and doing things, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the right time and and not prioritizing the wrong things. But uh, you know, certainly um, making sure that you don't put stuff off to the last minute to get something started. Well, you know, I think you say put off to the last minute and there's, and I'm sure you've heard this where somebody says, I do my best work when I'm under the most pressure. It's like a diamond, you know, they, they tend to come out and with yeah. their, the best results. And I think I used to think the same thing. So I, throughout all the years that I'd been doing all my schoolwork, I'd always wait till the last minute to get my, my assignment in on time and I'd get a glorified A for it. And then right. I switched where I started doing things sooner because I had other obligations to meet. And I realized, wow, I do even better work when I have time to actually do it and do it right and look it over several times versus waiting till the last minute and hoping that I, you know, I didn't miss any mistakes. So it's, I think yeah. it's like different ways to go about that procrastination, but coming out of procrastination, it's, it really takes some reconditioning. I think that's what I struggled with so much was trying to, it's a behavioral change. To, sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing that works for me is uh, I know that my, my best time during the day, my most valuable time is between, you know, around eight 30 to like 10 30 in the morning. That's if, if I need to do something that requires brain power, mm-hmm. that's the time that I want to schedule it in for my day because that's when I can focus the best. Um, doesn't always happen that way, right. but, uh, you know, if I have total control of my time during the day, if I want to do something creative or writing or, uh, something that I don't really like doing. That's that's for me. That's the best time. So it may help to to find whatever time it is for you during the day, um, and make sure that you you know if you've got something that you don't want to do that, you know you do that. Another thing I think that can be helpful is setting up a reward system for yourself. Saying yes. I'm not going to do this until I get this thing done. Right? Yep. And just I hold agree. yourself accountable for that. So I agree absolutely. All right, All right. technophobia is the next one. I think being so and, unsociable uh, is your next one, isn't it? Right, we already hit that. Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm skipping ahead here. Being unsociable is <laughs> maybe skipping ahead on purpose. <laughs> this is uh, not something that you and I have problems with, so I just correct. <laughs> but there are people who do have problems with this, and uh, um, I was just talking with somebody the other day about how um, I think it was actually my son who said, you know, his girlfriend is social, so he can tolerate it. He doesn't really want to, but I think that holds him back, and he sees that it holds him back, and he knows why. But I don't think people understand they why they're unsocial. Um, I, yeah. I, there are several people where I work that they don't want to talk to anybody. They don't want to be around right. people. They don't want to interact. They don't want to share their private life. And being social doesn't mean sharing your personal private life. It means being able to hold a conversation and just be able to talk, be able to hold your own. And so I think people have a, a fuzzy line there that they are not understanding. Um, but I know there are people there too that will overshare at work and talk too much at work. So I think there's going to be a happy uh, balance in there and knowing where, you're, where your boundaries are at, knowing where other people's boundaries are at when you're talking about being social at work and um, interfacing and developing relationships at work. Because it is important to develop relationships at work. No matter what anybody says, it's not about building friendships because you hear that all the time. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to get a job done. Well, you need other people to help you get that job done too. And you got to help others get their job done. So I think this is a, a great point that uh, you do need to have some social skills to be able to be, um, to move your career ahead. Well, and I think it's important too, you know, I, I work with a lot of engineers and, and their engineers are famous for not being very social. Right. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think it's important for people to remember, you don't have to become best friends with somebody, exactly. um, you know, just say hi, you know, that's the kind of the small talk. And, um, I, you know, I look at it as a way, uh, in the workplace, it's, it's like, uh, you know, you have a jar with you and, and jar has coins in it. Yeah. And every time that you have a positive interaction with somebody, you, you put a jar, you put a coin in their jar and they remember that you gave them that coin. Right. Right. Um, and then, you know, if you were to go yell at them, you might as well just dump the jar out and you've got to <laughs> right. start all over again. So, Correct. um, you know, being social, I think is important because when you have something that, 
you know, is a little out of the ordinary and they maybe wouldn't have had to go out of your way for you. It's, it's important if you have some sort of relationship with that person. Yes. So you can go say, Hey, I'm really in a gym. Can you help me out? And if their jar is, you know, even got a couple of coins in it from you, they'll probably be like, yeah, here, let me help you out. I mean, yeah. but if your jar is completely empty for, with that person, they're, they're probably going to say no, yep. you know, or uh, you get into this thing where you're, you know, you keep, stat you keep track of who owes who what right like well yeah. i'll just do it for you this one time but you're gonna owe me big buddy yeah and, and those <laughs> those go backs are always always very painful yeah there's um you know you mentioned putting coins in other people's jars and in that kind of coming full circle i've got a really great example for that with the previous employer there was one co-worker that everybody warned me about you don't want to work with this person this person has got a bad attitude she's not willing to help out she'll do the bare minimum and when I'd spoken to her, it's like, yeah, she really does have a bad attitude. And so and everybody had to rely on this person. She um, she had an important job that spanned across. It was at the university that I used to work at. And so I got to the point where I didn't want to fight with her. I And I didn't know her from Adam. So when I would talk with her, she was not very helpful at first. But no matter if she was helpful or not, I'd let her know, hey, um, Ruth, we'll just use her name as that. <laughs> I say, Hey Ruth, thank you. To protect the innocent. Yes. Pretend, well, she was not considered innocent by many, but <laughs> I'd say, Hey Ruth, thank you. I, you know, rather you could, you, I, you didn't have what I needed. That's okay. I still appreciate you. Thank you. And I think the first couple of times you could hear her eyes rolling to the back of her head. And after a while, she's like, you could hear that, that little gerbil in her brain started to work the wheel. I'm like, wait a second here. She keeps saying this and she's keeping nice and I'm not giving her right. anything. And yeah. eventually she would, she turned and she started returning the coins that I was giving to her. And she was doing a little more for me. She wouldn't go above and beyond for just anybody though. It had to be, you know, she, unfortunately she lacked some um, professionalism and emotional intelligence to say, okay, I don't like you, but I'm still going to do this for you. It was, I don't like you. I'm not doing it for you, but right. it works when you, when you express that genuinely and don't fake it. Um, it is returned. It comes back one way or another. There's a bit of karma work in there, I think. Yeah. All right, next topic is technophobia for reals. I didn't skip <laughs> anything this time. And uh, yeah, I think this is becoming less of a thing, right? As the uh, older generation kind of uh, retires on and, uh -huh. and you see fewer of them in the workplace. I mean, um, it's, it's you know, you, there are still some people, I think, in the workplace that, you know, I mean, they, they certainly were around before email. And, yep. you know, we've all heard of the you know, bosses who had their, you know, had their people print the emails for, for them so they could oh, read them. I know somebody <laughs> right? who still does that and drives. Yes. I'd, yeah. I know somebody very close. His boss prints the email, takes it to his office, which is 20 feet away and says, here, I need your opinion on this. And the recipient's like, just email it to me. I'll read it and write you a response. Oh no, I need you to read this right now. And drive, yeah. this guy doesn't like technology at all. He cannot grasp the concept of digitalization and hand, you know, hands-free or, um, you know, paper free. And he's just, it's amazing how much he's resisting to it. Yeah. And in, in some cases I get it. It's nice to have that piece of paper to write something down on, especially if that's how you learn, but there's a transition that's before too long. It's, you know, you'll, you'll have restrictions on how much paper a company can buy because they want you to not be wasting. And so. Um, well, I think the, the bigger challenge, right. Is how technology, you know, cause people, a lot of, some people don't like change and, the, yep. and, Technology is certainly something that changes quite frequently. And so, um, you know, certainly keeping up with the technology and the new software and the programs is important. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important that people, you know, put the time and effort into learning new new pieces of software. And I, I mean, I'd like to add one in here uh, and I don't really know what to call it. It's not technophobia because, you know, I know the technology and I, I can use it very effectively. Um, but there are just some programs that we have at work that I cannot stand. I mean, they are just, they stink, they suck. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, I don't, I don't really know what I would call that, but being forced to use software that stinks is definitely a category. And I think, you know, just trying to make the best out of it uh, yeah. is what you have to do, but certainly, uh, you know, especially when there's software out there on the market that, you know, works much better, but your company's yes. decided to go with an inferior piece yeah. of software because, you know, somebody didn't understand or doesn't understand and some decision got made without the people who know about the technology. That right. Up a wall. Yeah. And I think you're kind of referring to inefficiencies in the workplace and yeah. I, people, we've always done it this way. We've always used this tool. It's been fine. Well, maybe fine's not enough, especially if you're looking for specific goals to reach. And so I agree with you. There's, um, there's been a lot of times I've been in a, in a, 
a workplace where the tools available in technology specific just were terrible. They're not easy to learn. They're not easy to interface with. They don't interact with the other programs you need them to interact with. And so you're doubling up your work when technology is supposed to make it easier and more seamless. And yeah. I think there's a lot of companies out there that have way more software, way more tools than they're needing. And they all have cross-functional opportunities, but they're not using them properly. So yeah, I, I agree with you. That's that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. It's probably the thing I I have the most difficult time dealing with at work is inefficiencies specific to technology. All right, next up is perfectionism. And uh, everybody should know that for now, I'm editing the podcast so that uh, you will hear, you know, ums and ahs and because I'm not a perfectionist when it comes right. to editing. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe someday we'll hire a podcast editor and they'll take all that butt out. But the, the big truth is, you know, uh, you know, good enough is, is better than not being done at all. Right. Right. Yeah. This is a, I think this is what creates a lot of problems with the mentality at work and, and the ability to have a high self-esteem and high confidence at work is people want perfectionism for themselves. And then some managers out there and they're unreasonable, in my opinion, also want perfectionism from their teams. And it's, you know, that's, I tease and you say things such that, you know, there's really no, there's really no such thing as perfect. You just can't achieve it. It's not out there. We all have that created that our own value of what perfection is. And it's usually not attainable. There's always something better. There's always a different way to do it. And even once you achieve what you think is perfection, you find something wrong with that. So sure. I, think is, I think this is a real dangerous um, mentality to have anywhere. And it's not anything if you're too perfect, you know, you go to the ums and ahs from our, our, our show. And that, I think that has a bit of genuine um, aspect to what we're doing. Cause if we were perfect, we'd kind of be boring. Cause I think right. perfectionism is kind of a, a boring thing. Sure. Uh, so it's, I know that's my take on it. I don't care if I'm perfect. I think mistakes are great and they're, they're better to learn from. It's hard to learn from perfectionism. Right. All right. Last one is sense of entitlement, which uh, kind of goes along with being narcissistic, which yeah. I can't stand. Right. Uh, I have a really sensitive flag for that, but uh, tell us about sense of entitlement and what's your take on it. So I see this all the time and, and I, I can come up with some examples from, and I think we all can from every employer I've ever worked for. And this is that person that thinks they should have it because of some reason, um, be it that they've got a master's degree, they've got a military background, they deserve something because they have something in their toolbox that says that I can do this, so I should have this. Or, you know, it's, it's just that lousy, that lousy, egotistical, overconfident self where, you know, people think they should have something handed to them and just given to them because they're, they're yeah. that kind of person. And this is usually your most unpopular person. And sometimes they're really talented and they really do they can back up what they say, but they've got a terrible attitude about it. There's no, they're not humble. Give it to me. It's mine. You don't deserve that. I should have it. Um, or they take credit for what you've done because they feel like, well, I know I had a, I had a, had a supervisor once that um, they took my ideas and pawned them off as their own. Right. In fact, I created a training program and I'm humble. You know, if you, I could do something for the organization, not so much myself and, and my training program was taken and this person presented it as their own. And, and it was just like, well, wait a second, because this person thought I should be able to do this. I'm the boss. And so I'm going to say, this is mine. It's like, go ahead. But once they do the background checks on the, the, the technology check on it, they're going to see it came from my computer, but you do you, that's fine. Yeah. So, and I think this is what ticks off a lot of people at work. This is a lot of the complaints I hear at work is that person feels like they're, they're due or they're owed something. And, um, it's, it's a real, it's just, it's just yucky. <laughs> it's just not do fun. Yeah. The, uh, the article specifically talks about how, you know, somebody who's, you know, at one level in their career thinks they deserve to be at another level. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and it's, there's a lot of times people don't get put at the, the right level. Maybe there's not an opportunity available, but, uh, I've seen this before where somebody has, uh, you know, they think, you know, because they've been there a period of time or something that they should automatically be, you know, given a certain position and, um, you know, that's there a lot of times uh, what I've seen is folks don't have a realistic, um, viewpoint of their skills, yeah. um, or their, their skills are not perceived the same way by their manager. So, yep. uh, I think yeah, that's I a, that's one to, to watch out for. Absolutely. Totally agree. 
Well, what do you think? You want to move on to what do we have here? Career fails. This was awesome. Career fail of the week. So in career fails, you've got uh, Elon had a, uh, a Twitter meltdown. Or, I mean, he's had several, right? So which one is this This one talking about? This one, what is this? Elon Musk. And he was going off about, oh, the coronavirus, everybody's favorite subject. And he just he was just critical and he was saying some things that you don't know if he was emotional. And I'm not as familiar with this guy as what some may be. So to others, this may be normal behavior for him. But for me, it's to me, it's like you're an executive, you own a company, you're super successful. Why are you acting this way? And the, the, this particular article is from The Verge, and it's a little more um, vulgar than what we're probably used to seeing out there. But it goes into, you know, just him being critical of sheltering in place, um, talking about how the panic was worse than it should have been. Um, he even, I mean, he, he was kind of coming out of left field because he even talked about how his girlfriend was. Um, upset with him. And so right. with every twit he, or tweet or whatever he's doing on, I guess it was Twitter that he was on, it was actually impacting the, um, his, uh, oh my gosh, what do you, st- the stock to the company. He was right. actually impacting that. And, and I just thought, wow, that's amazing. He's on the social media and he's just making a, a few posts on there and it's impacting his organization. Well, yeah, sure. People have to be so careful because they they don't see Elon Musk as a human being; they see him as part of his his company. Yeah, so they see he, him as an extension of the company. Exactly, he is the face of Tesla, and so people don't realize this is and this just is not exclusive to to Elon Musk by any means. This is anything you know. Think of a cop inside of a retail store that's getting robbed. You expect the cop who's off duty to react and save the day, and so yeah. it's it's just amazing how. Um, this didn't just go on to say, you know, he didn't just hurt the sales of his product. He literally hurt the company through the stock market because it's it was taking a roller coaster ride that day. He was having an emotional breakdown. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, we we we've, we're talking about Elon Musk and the career fails, which, you know, <laughs> arguably he's probably got the best career er, ever. Right. Right. Um, I mean, he is like a billionaire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's it certainly is important to recognize one, the power of social media mm-hmm. and two, um, how finical or finical. I don't even know if that's a word, how <laughs> finicky, um, you know, wall street is right. I mean, cause yeah. they look and go, Oh, Elon Musk is going nuts and sell yeah. your stock. Right. Right. Um, and enough, enough people do that. And it, and it trends in the market and you know, it, it has a big impact. So, um, you know, I think companies, uh, really, these days live or die by their stock prices. And yeah. so anything you do that kind of affects the stock price kind of is a bad day. So, yep. um, or affects it, affects it down at least. So yeah, certainly, uh, your, your public appearance and, uh, is important. And I just wonder how much these people really think about how public they really are. Um, you know, when they're, when they're tweeting out to all that sort of stuff. So, well, that may go back to the, you know, the last, um, the last segment we talked about entitlement and these are the kind of guys that seem to feel like they're entitled so that they can do or say anything that they want and they're invincible. They're immortal. Nothing's going to take them down, but you know, guys like this better be careful because they can go down just as hard as they went up. It's yeah. It's yeah. That's definitely a career fail red flag. So certainly wouldn't recommend having a Twitter meltdown and talking about your job. (laughs) That's the takeaway here, folks. Exactly. Um, You know, and if, you know, if you're honestly in my book, you know, if you're Elon Musk with this kind of stuff, I mean, certainly not everything, but you kind of get a pass on this, right? I mean, they, uh, they certainly uh, live by different rules, I think. And, uh, um, it it certainly is entertaining to a degree to to the rest of us. But yeah, if we were to do this, we certainly would be out of a job for sure. Just, it goes to show that there's, he does, he's not as well put together as what he likes to present yeah it's if you're well and i think it's i think it's it's important to remember i mean he's a human too right and he's gonna have human emotions and um and he just happens to be putting his emotions out on twitter Uh, but uh you know i mean these people are human too and i think people forget that sometimes so yeah they do i think we all do let's talk tech you're in the it corner 
All right, in the IT corner here, how to use your phone to declutter your life. It's going to save your life. It's going to save, it's going to save your life. <laughs> it might, might make your home a little cleaner. So what's this at? What's this story all about here? Go paperless. There, Go so paperless, yeah. Don't um, kill the trees. Right. Well, there's a, you know, there's a lot of things you can do on your phone. And I rely on my phone heavily. I've been getting all kinds of neat gadgets and devices. I've got a a new digital thermostat and it's, you know, it, I've got an app for my phone so I can be anywhere. And I see it more of as a tool to jack around with my kids and turn things off and on in the house. So I've got some smart light bulbs. I've got an Alexa. What else have I've got the ring doorbell? I scared some kids the other night that were, you know, hanging out at my house and they're on the front porch. And then, cause you can talk through this thing and they're people right. are like, what is happening? And so I have more fun with these. They're supposed to be home support apps. And, but you know, with, when you talk about going paperless, I don't know if, if people are too aware, but you can get things like your bills you know, through the email instead of having them come through. I, I don't like mail. I'm terrible about piling up the mail for, you know, six weeks and be like, oh, yeah, I should probably go through this mail. And I've already right. done most of it because I either work through my phone or I work through my laptop to get things taken care of. Or I work, you know, I have Quicken Books or Quicken or whatever that program's called. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people realize there's a lot of... Um, a lot of companies out there, they're willing to offer you some sort of incentive to go paperless because it costs them money to send the paper out. And all we're doing is throwing it away. They're literally sending us trash. Right. So it's a great thing to, to get on your phone. Look for the apps like for your utilities, your credit card apps, you know, especially if those offer you um, your credit score. But just taking advantage of what your phone can offer you because you can be anywhere on the road. And how often have you been driving somewhere and realized, oh, no, I didn't pay this bill and. It'll be, you know, I have to get home to pay it first or you're on vacation or whatever. And so there's just a lot of um, a lot of great convenience in having a phone with all these apps so you can get the alerts instead of having this piece of paper sent to you in the mail, in my opinion, because I give, I mean, I have a huge trash bin of all the, the mail I get from my, the people I owe money to. And it's like, just send me an email. Yep. I will pay you, send me a link in the email. I'll pay you that way. I wish we had a thing we could go to online and just opt out of junk mail altogether. Wouldn't that be great? You know? That would be How awesome. How do we still get junk mail to this day? How yeah. is that possible? And I do marketing too. So, I mean, for me to say that, <laughs> it's pretty big. <laughs> probably, yeah, probably not the but, wisest thing to say, huh? <laughs> but this article has a lot of good suggestions like uh, a scanning app. There's lots of scanning apps out there. Yeah. This one has Adobe Scan. I don't, I don't even use that, but I know... There's lots of other scanning apps that will take pictures of, of pieces of paper. It'll even graphically clean them up so it doesn't look like a photo and look make it look like a real scan. Um, it's talking about uh, uh, Evernote. I know that's an app that uh, both you and I use on the yeah. computer and on the phones, and so that, that can be really handy. I've, I've used Evernote for years. On a, um, I can't say I highly recommend it anymore because it's becoming a little bit outdated, but I still do use it quite a bit. Um, and then if you scroll through this article really quick, it, it might be, you might see it uh, show your junk, but it's actually sell your junk. That's what I, I read it wrong. I was like, whoa, this is not what I expected. Well, the phone can do that for you. We do it, not it recommend can. that it, one. We do not recommend that at all. But it talks about how you can sell your stuff on, I guess, uh, eBay and Facebook Marketplace. So You know what? Uh, yeah, I, I do that a lot. I've, I've sold several items on Facebook marketplace and I sell it faster doing that than doing a garage sale. Now, to be honest with you, I hate garage sales. I don't want to be that organized in something. It's just much easier to take a picture, post it up there and somebody come offer to take it off my hands. It yeah. is awesome. Yeah. So that's a good way to use your phone to declutter your life in the physical oh, yeah. world. Absolutely. Um, uh, recipes too. That's one thing that I rely on my phone a lot for is, you know, I've got a plethora and I'm sure every, every cook out there does, I have books of recipes. I have handwritten records of recipes. And despite having all of those, I still turned my phone to, I think I've got the tasty app and another app. And I just look for recipes on there. I kind of put in whatever ingredients I have in my house and it spits something out at me. It's like, great, I can make that. And it's going to take 30 minutes. Let's go. And so it's, there's a lot of ways, a lot of things out there like that that can help to take the paper out of your life, to kind of smooth things over in your life and, and like I said, make it fun. Like I said, I, I jack with my kids when I'm not home with the lights and the, the, the thermostat and the, the doorbell. I have a lot of fun with it. So be creative with it too. Be organized and creative. Yeah, it certainly is amazing how much your phone can do now compared to <laughs> even just five years ago. Oh yeah. Oh, very much so. It's, 
I'm still floored by some of the stuff it can do. And I still learn things. I, I'm a big note taker and a big list maker. And I can do all that in my phone. In fact, I can tell my Alexa, you know, create this list or add this to this list. And she's like my little personal assistant. I don't have to have the, I mean, I've got two pads of paper that are magnetic stick to my fridge. And I don't have to use them anymore. They were a waste of money. There you go. Yeah, it works. So that's get to know your phone, figure out what it can do, find the apps out there. And there's always more than one app solution to what you're looking for. So check, try a few different ones. Don't, don't fall in love with the first one you see. First one may not be the best one. Awesome. It's parent time. All right. Welcome to another week of Parent Time with Dennis Fauntleroy of Dad's Care 2. And this week we're going to talk about the changing roles of moms and dads. How are you, Dennis? Doing great today. How about yourself, partner? I'm doing good. So tell me a little bit about the uh, the changing roles of moms and dads. What's your take on this? Well, my, my take on it is uh, if you're wise enough to understand that uh, our culture changes, our generations change, um, the way we think and perceive and process uh, is going to be different than, than what our children think, process, and, and carry out and, and grow. Uh, it, it, it is obvious that we have to be adjustable almost on the fly and that everything almost has to be a situational um, uh, response as opposed to just being dedicated to what you grew up and know. Um, so that's how initially that that's how I would uh, think about it. So what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. yeah, I think that you're exactly right. And, you know, if we go back, you know, 50 or 70 years in American history, right, the, the roles of moms and dads were very well defined um, and, and sort of stagnant, right? The women always had one role and then the dad or the man always had another role. And I think today, um, you know, there's, there's many different roles that either gender can play and it really is just what works for that family. Right. So, um, in my mind, a lot of families, uh, I've seen, you know, they can share the roles of, uh, that were typically, you know, uh, mom roles and dad roles. They're all kind of jumbled together. And I see both parents now sort of splitting those duties, um, more or less equally. I, I agree. And uh, again, with uh, with how families are built, you know, uh, the blended family has replaced uh, the, the nuclear family, the blended family or the single parent family has replaced the nuclear family as the norm. And so it just uh, the reality is, is that whatever needs to be done just needs to be done. And we really can't battle over whose role it is uh, mm -hmm. because you'll spend more time battling over that than actually uh, getting whatever uh, uh, needs to happen to happen. Well, I think that's a, a good point, Dennis. I was speaking with somebody recently about parenting and the roles of the household. And it was kind of a coaching appointment as he was trying to, you're, you're trying in coaching, you're trying to help somebody dig into their own mind. And as he was talking about the things and the choices he was making, and I had asked him, why do you make those choices? And he's like, that's the way I was raised. That's what you do. It's like, well, but what do you want to do? This is your life. This is your child's life. You've got this other parent in this situation. They happen to not be married, but cohabitating and they're not getting along very well. And he's like, I have no clue. That's I'm the dad. I do these things because that's what dads do. She's supposed to do this, these things because that's what moms do. And then we do things as parents together. And then it's like, well, that doesn't always work anymore. It's the times have changed drastically. And you know, though you do have to interchange, you do have to be agile and you do have to adapt very quickly. And you may not even like how you have to adapt sometimes. It just... oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a true statement. <laughs> I think parenting is such a forward thinking. First up, I think it's pro-social behavior. I don't think we realize while well, we've got this little baby in our arms and this is so great. We don't realize we're, they have so much more time out in the real world than with us. And our job is to prepare them to go out into the real world. And we just don't forward think enough to realize they're not going to be here X amount of years. I need to not only prepare them for the world, but prepare myself for them to go on and not be not forced everything you believe onto your children. And I think that's the hardest thing about parenting is I believe this way. You're going to believe this way. I do it this way. You're going to do it this way. 
And you really do have to step back and look at how can you adapt so you can teach your child the same techniques. My thoughts on, you know, the fact that we're constantly in a state of flux uh, in terms of uh, the world coming at us and uh, what affects our children and their uh, points of view. I think as parents, uh, if, if whether you're married or cohabitating or co-parenting, um, you really uh, have to discuss. Okay, what are those? Um, what are those um, sticking points? Um, when I uh, when my kids were really young, you know, and I I come from an authoritarian family. Uh, my dad and mom, fifteen kids. Uh, my dad was a pastor. My mom, uh, she was at home up until the time I was like 10 or so. And then she started working for the police department. But everybody knew their roles. And there were certain things that was were, were not to be questioned. If you, and what I passed on to my children, don't lie to me, don't spit on anybody, and don't defy me. And, uh, you know, because I wanted them to, to learn honesty, respect, and, and, and uh, for authority and, and, for, and to honor me as their parent. Um, so by, by not defying what I'm trying to uh, share with them. So I had basic foundational principles. I think that parents have to really get ground rules uh, on what's going to be sticking points and what can be flexible. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think uh, it's really key that the parents be on the same page as far as what, you know, each other's roles and responsibilities are, not just, you know, with the disciplining the kids, but I think in general, you know, I mean. Well, I think that's why I see co-parenting a lot more differently than other people, even being a single parent. I don't consider myself co-parenting with the fathers of my kids because my, my three kids are from two different marriages and we dual parent. They have their way of parenting and then I have my way of doing it. Now, when we lived in the same house, I consider that co-parenting because like being in a, an airplane, you have two people flying the plane, two people making decisions and two people needing to work together and communicate. And that's how I see parenting in a household because I see parents with, you know, throughout the many phases of a child's life, parents don't always agree on how to manage a child, how to teach a child. And so I, that to me is co-parenting where you really have to work together and be parents and partners um, in that role and try to come to an understanding as to how are we going to handle the baseball going through the window and helping these kids learn to make better decisions or different decisions because decision making is a huge part of um, my parental role in this household and i think that's that makes all the difference is pointing that out but but that in they do have to be on the same page but i think that's where the co-parenting comes in instead of just calling it to me anyway and i know not everybody sees it that way most people see the divorced single families as co-parenting it's like I don't get along with these people. If I did, we'd probably still be married. Yeah. So we, we just, and I, I don't have any say so over their household. It's, it's just the way that it is. And, but you, you still have to be in within your own home. You do have to be on that, that same page. So the term, so the term dual parenting, I want to kind of back you up. I heard you say that. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that intrigues me because I've, I don't think I've ever heard it put like that. And I know nobody said it but me. <laughs> it's, right. my, it's my turn. But well, when you have two different sets of parenting styles that a kid has to bounce back and forth to, to me, that's not co-parenting. You're not working together because co means together. And when you have two separate lanes, that's dual. And you have you, each parent stays in their lane. They try to intercept. And how many fights occur because one parent says, in your home, do it this way, because that's how I do it in my home. And it's like, time out. That's not happening. Okay. So that that's why I call it that, because I it was just easier to not try to control another parent's household, be it my own children or other people's children, because you can't do that no matter what. Right. I, I get the concept and I, I can I appreciate that. Really, I do, because I've it gives us it gives me a different perspective on uh, how to, again, parent. Uh, and yeah. teach and teach uh, from the perspective that uh, I've got to share with my children. Okay, I get that that's the way your mom or your stepmom or your stepdad does things, you know. Um, and so what that means is that you have to adjust to life where you are. Right. You know, 
for me, to me, that's the emphasis that I would put on that dual parenting, uh, the dual parent um, model that, okay, okay, son, okay, daughter, uh, this is the deal. Uh, that we're working together to try to both pour into your life. So you've got to, you've got to understand there are some absolutes and some relatives. And so, but, and, and you have to make the decision on how you're going to react uh, right. to, e- to either or. And so, uh, yeah, I can, I can, I can appreciate you putting it like that. Cause I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it like that. Well, and there are parents out there who do co-parent. What else do we want to talk about with the changing roles? Again, rec- just recognizing that they, that you have to manage the change, because as Tara and I were discussing, the just the way you verbalize or the verbiage that you put into um, the roles really will make a difference on how you approach it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. like you said, co means you know working together. You know, dual means okay, we're we're running parallel, and that parallel may veer off you know, yes. at different uh, places. So, yeah. And I think it's important when you're parallel parenting to understand that you're kind of doing the both roles in your house, right? So you're doing both the mom and the dad role, you know, um, together. And the kid is, is, or the kids are getting that same thing from the other household. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's important to, uh, you know, to only do that if you absolutely have to. I mean, I think it's better to be co-parenting where you're you know on the same page with the other parent but i mean that takes cooperation from the other parent in situations of divorce right so it takes two mature uh, people who can put aside their personal issues together and actually put the kids first which is a big struggle for most people out there and it's unfortunate because that's how it really should be done in the kid so the kids come out better for it but divorce aside i think it's important if you're you know if you're in a household with two parents uh you know make sure they're on the same page. Dennis, like you said, make sure, you know, that you verbalize and use the right language about what each other's roles are going to be. Right. And then, and then stick to that. And if it changes, then talk about it again, you know? Well, see, uh, in our, in our connecting fragile families, uh, curriculum that we use, uh, in our, our parenting classes and for our father's groups and, and mom's groups, uh, we talk about that, you know, and, uh, that those, those concepts have to really be threshed out and understood where they come from, you know, and hopefully yeah. both of those parents can be honest and earnest enough to say, okay, well, maybe um, raising my voice or what have you, or letting them stay up until midnight isn't the appropriate thing. But you you definitely have to uh, to talk it out and, and try to come to some sort of a, a, um, a middle ground on how to do it together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Media Madness. All right, Media Madness, your pick uh, is <laughs> Idiot by Laura Clearly. What's Clea? this all about? Clea? Is that saying That's, that wrong? It is. Where did I put that? Cleary. Laura Cleary. Did I put that in there? It's in there somewhere. I'll find Yeah, Laura Cleary. So um, I, I, I know you're on Facebook, Chris. I'm on Facebook. And I found this gal by clear accident. She had one of those videos up there and she's a, she's an actress. Oh yeah. I know this gal. She's got really (laughs) funny videos. Yep. I think her most popular one is help Helen smash is she, she, uh, she does these with her husband. Yes. Yeah. He, he's pretty funny. He is. And so, um, they are, when you first, when you first start watching this, you don't realize they're husband and wife, right? So isn't he Australian or something? He's British. He's British. Okay. They've done actually since coming out and, you've seen her develop, not just her character, but you've seen her develop her personality and you get to be included in her life. She was, you know, they, they were already married and they had a baby and you got to watch that whole thing go through. Right. And then, um, because she's American and he's British, they've done this whole America or American versus British language, you know, a, a parking lot versus a car park. And they're yep. great videos to watch. Um, her helps Helen smash videos. They're clearly inappropriate. She makes fun of an, um, she sexually harasses her husband. Yeah, this is where she follows him around and tries to get her to sleep with him or get him to sleep with her. And at the end, he's like, fine, whatever. Whatever. (laughs) It was awesome. So I became really intrigued and fascinated by this gal. And so I saw that um, one of her videos, she posted, hey, I've written this book. Please read it. Don't hate me because she's just as raw in this book 
as she is in real life. And I'm nearly completed with this book. It is a page turner. It's a fast read because she's basically, um, she just calls it a bunch of stories about her life. She has, uh-huh. um, she was a, a, a troublemaker in high school. She did drugs in high school that, you know, she wanted to always be an actress. She went to LA. She's been to New York where she just blew up as a drug and um, a drug addict and alcoholic. And in fact, her, her husband is a, an alcoholic as well. They're both recovering. And so she just goes through the different stories of her life. And so it's one of those things, if you feel like you have made all these, these bad decisions and you don't know how to, to dig yourself out of them, you can read this book and realize, wow, there's, and she's, she doesn't seem to be the smartest person in the world. When you see her online, just see this funny girl, this funny, weird kind of strange person that's, you know, throwing these comedies out there, but she really makes you think about the decisions you're making and why you're making them. And she had talked about her addiction came from um, some of her growing up with an alcoholic father and Uh how she dealt with that. And her dealing with that was to drink her emotions and, you know, snort her emotions or smoke her emotions through her weed. And so Definitely a, a page turner. She talks about how she got sober, how she failed in her sobriety a couple of times. And she just, every time she fell off that horse, she got right back up on it and just kept going. So it's a, not necessarily a feel good. Um, she is a little vulgar in it. So just like Mark Manson, if you're not used to that, open right. your up and kind of relax, but page turner, I, I get excited to read it and get to know more about her. And um, I think I also like a, her very first statement is that she's tall. She's just right. stupid mm-hmm. tall and I'm stupid tall like her. I'm actually, she's six foot and I'm six one. So it's kind of like you find a way to relate to her very quickly, even though I don't have any addiction problems like that. I was still able to relate to her because I understand the height issues and the, you know, with the challenges that go along with that. So well, now you just need a couple of million Facebook followers and you guys will be a pair. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and she's actually been on, if you ever watch the show and I didn't watch it, but till death. So she's been on a couple of um, sitcoms throughout the years. So she's okay. been out there, um, but she's, yeah, definite one to watch and, and follow. She's going to, she's going to make it really big here for too long. She can definitely rock the uh, filters on there because oh the, the help Helen smash ones are, <laughs> you know, I mean, in, in real life, she's really attractive and this filter yeah. makes her no, not very attractive. Oh, that's awesome. She, she certainly has uh, figured out how to make that work for her. She is. Yeah. She definitely braces that weird side to herself and it's great. I love seeing it. So Definitely one I, I recommend everybody to to pick up and feel good, feel better about yourself.